Well, hey, good morning, Rock Hill. Welcome to those of you in the room, but also those that are online. We're grateful that you're worshiping with us by way of technology or in by in the flesh. So we're grateful for that. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. So go to Psalms and go left a little bit, and you'll find the book of Esther. Now listen, I grew up with an older brother, and now because of by God's grace, I have three daughters. And since then, I've been indoctrinated with a couple of things, namely... Cartoon children's stories. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up watching more boyish uh, cartoons. You know, like the really manly kind, like Robin Hood. But since having girls, I've been indoctrinated with uh, fairy tale Disney-esque stories. There's one particular one that highlights for me, and it's the story of a young girl who loses her mother tragically, and then her father quickly remarries and marries uh, a lady who has two daughters of her own, and so now this young girl has two stepsisters, and it doesn't go well for her. Her father eventually dies as well, and then all of a sudden, and she becomes her servant, all of a sudden the prince is looking for a new princess. So he does a pre-bachelorette thing. He has a beauty pageant. And what he does is that you can get in your ball gown, you can dress up real nice, you go to this ball, and uh, based on a number of things, you you can then become his princess. Poor little girl doesn't have a chance because she's forced to do chores and the dress that she had made by talking mice eventually gets destroyed. But thankfully, a fairy godmother, which is not real, just want to preface that, comes and transforms the mice into little servants and, a, and into horses and a pumpkin into a carriage and all of these kinds of beautiful things. And then all of a sudden she goes to the ball. She's wearing glass slippers. Never tried it before, but it's got to be dangerous. She goes to this ball and based out of her beauty and eloquence, she dances the night away until the clock strikes midnight. And all of a sudden all the beauty, all the pageantry begins to fade Away Now, eventually, they go on a hunt for this young lady, and they find her because her feet, small, I don't know what they were, but they fit inside the slipper. And it's a story of, as you know, Cinderella, they get married, and they live happily ever after. Now, if you've not seen that movie, and I've just ruined the ending for you, it was made in 1950, get over it. (laughs) Now, the book of Esther, you say, what does that have to do? The book of Esther is not a Cinderella story. The book of Esther is not this, although we'll see some similarities, this beauty pageant in which the prince is going to find his princess and they're going to dance the night away and they live happily ever after. That's not what we see in this text. And I think sometimes we have maybe mystified a little bit the Old Testament and created heroes and heroines because we think, oh, that's who I want to be like. But I need you to hear today that the Bible is going to be really honest about this young lady, and it is filled with compromise. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Esther chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And preaching a narrative is a little bit different, so you have to follow with me. We'll put the verses on the screen that we're in. But if you're there, will you say word? Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, his rage had cooled down. That means he was sober. He remembered, hold on in suspension, Vashti. What she had done and what was decided against her. Now, if you recall, chapter 1 
Chapter one was a story before the story. Chapter one was about this wicked and evil Persian king, King Xerxes. Uh, King Xerxes, he said the great, but I would call him the awful. I mean, this is the king who threw a six-month party, followed with a seven-day party. His queen, Queen Vashti, she threw a seven-day party just for the ladies. Ladies only, I guess it was the auxiliary club. I don't really know, but they threw a party, and they had their own little shindig. And then all of a sudden, out of his... Out of the abundance of drunkenness, after all the food, all the drink, all the golden goblets filled with, filled with royal wine, all, all the things you could imagine, uh, the golden couches, the purple curtains, all those things, he requests his queen to come and essentially gawk and be gawked at in front of all these frat bros. She declines the invitation, and out of his drunkenness, he and his wily Coyote committee get together and decide, let's kick her out, and then let's send a letter to all the families in the kingdom, which is pretty big, and let's just go ahead and tell them all women have to submit to their men and do whatever they tell them to do, no matter what. We pick up in verse 1 here, and he, he says, says very clearly, after, after some time, so some time has happened, he's sobered up, and it says that he remembered. The, the Hebrew there in this idea is not that he just, oh yeah, I remember her as an afterthought. The idea of remembering is this idea of fondness and affection, and he recalls how much he actually did sincerely care for and even love this woman. He remembers her, and it's with fondness that he remembers her, and she, though, had done something that he did not like, and he remembers what had been committed, and he can't go back. He can't change time. Let's pick up in verse 2. It's what the story continues. The king's personal attendance suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins, there it is again, to the harem. Do you see that? To the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch. Notice what his job is, the keeper of the women. And give them the required beauty treatments. Now before we go any further, I need you to understand that this is not an isolated incident in the book of Esther. This is actually a long-standing tradition within the king and his kingdom was to have a harem of beautiful young virgins of which he could do whatever pleased him personally and even physically. This was not some one-out moment that the king did this search like the story of Cinderella. This is, like a, uh, where, this is where really I think the bachelor got their idea. Let's find all the beautiful young women. Let's get them all together. They go through a year-long process of spa treatments and oils and beautification. Let's get them in this moment. They, maybe they go to a, a CrossFit-style workout. Uh, they're going to do all these things, and all that's in an effort to make them even more beautiful than they already are. It's to accentuate the beauty they naturally have. And, and then they, they begin to say, let's, let's also say this harem or this bullpen was running low, and this was a constant practice of the king of Persia, he would take this bullpen and he would, they would gather up rows and rows of women to be at his own personally, personal disposal. I'm painting a picture here for you to understand this is not a Cinderella story. This isn't even 
PG. This, this isn't G. This isn't PG. This isn't PG-13. This is bad. His men would go around the empire and they would find the most beautiful young women. And when we say young virgins, we're talking not of age, many of them young of age. And they would put them in the pipeline in order to be part of his bullpen of girls that he could select from and do whatever he pleased. When the year would come to a close of this purification, they would then have a ticket. And that ticket was a one-night stand with the king, and he would do with them as he Please, this is the king of the largest empire in the world, and he has his selection of girls. These girls, once they had this one moment with the king, they would then have at their disposal whatever they wanted for the rest of their lives. They would put in a second category, out to pasture, still beautiful, but out to pasture, and they would live, they would live however they really wanted. Whatever they needed, they would be given. It was like winning the lottery for many. Before you think that I'm making this up, look down at chapter one, verse, I mean chapter two, verse 12. Look at the look at 12 through 14. It's it's on the screen, but he says, during the year, so I'm not making this up, during the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments, there it is, with oil of myrrh for six months, and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. I did the math. That's a year. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem harem, under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines, and she never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Do you see the picture here? This, This is a vile gross, wicked moment in time. This is a wicked practice that the king would take young girls, they would force them into beauty training, they would spend a year in that training, and when they came out of it, they would have a one night, you notice it doesn't start with brunch, it doesn't start with lunch, it doesn't start with top golf, it doesn't stop with, start with a zip line through the mountains, it starts literally in the evening and they get done by the morning. If you feel like the boys are left out, we know through history that they would do the same thing with boys. They would take boys, young boys, and they would, they would actually castrate them. Become, they would become eunuchs, and they would become servants to do whatever the king desired them to do. For instance, filling royal wine in gold custom goblets for visitors to the palace. I want you to get the picture here of the Persian Empire. Your girls are out riding their bike. Your young daughters Dads are riding their bikes in the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, a a van pulls up, and it says, we're taking your daughter. You get a notice. We've taken your daughter. The king has requested his concubines, his harm, to be filled up, and your daughter was chosen because she is beautiful. You will never see your daughter ever again. The boys are outside playing upward. They're just playing upward, doing their thing, and instead of a flag being taken, they're picked up, and they're put in the van, and they, as well, are going to be seen as eunuchs. And servants for the rest of their lives. This is a wicked, vile empire. Go back to verse 4. Thought I was going to skip all those verses, didn't you? Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did so accordingly. Now this round of 
filling up the bullpen was going to be a little bit different because they were without a queen. This time they said, let's up the ante. Let's say whatever girl we find and she truly pleases you, King Xerxes, she's going to become the next queen. Now what did Queen Vashti do that, that offended the king? Well, number one, she was not compliant. She would not do whatever he said to do. She actually says no. But two, because she wasn't compliant, she did not satisfy or please the king to which he desired. So they're going to be looking now for somebody who will be compliant, but also please the king physically and even sexually. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 19, it says they're going to look for somebody who is a better wife or a more wonderful wife than Queen Vashti. Do you get the picture of what's happening? Look at verse 5. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai. We're now introduced to our second main character of the story. Son of Jair, son of Shemil, son of Kish, a Benjamite. And let's stop right there because it's easy when you start reading and seeing all these words that you'll just skip over this and, and go on to your grocery list and say, I don't know who those names are and I don't really care. But it matters in this story. It matters in the story because while it doesn't list all the lineage of Mordecai, it lists several from his, his uh, family lineage. And his family lineage isn't just some random Jewish lineage. It's not some run-of-the-mill Jew. This guy, Mordecai, is a thoroughbred when it comes to Jewish heritage. So, well, how do you know he's a thoroughbred? Well, do you know the son of Kish is? The son of Kish, that Benjamite, his name was Saul. Saul was one of the most pertinent figures in the Old Testament. Saul was the king. He's not, Mordecai's not just some random Jew. He's, he was the king of the Jews. He was the one that was elected by the people. Now, I want you to hold this thought for chapter 3. We're not going to be in chapter 3 today. But I just need to hold it in your thought. That'll be something we deal with later his lineage and why it matters. Look at verse six. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconah and of Judah into exile. Now I gotta do a little bit of history here and maybe you already know this already, but Jerusalem had a split. They were the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then out of all of that, they became sacked and they became taken over by the Babylonians. And eventually, the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. And so that's how we have this moment where, why is Mordecai in this area? Why is he not in Jerusalem? Why is he not in Judah? Why is he not in these places? Well, it's because he was taken captive and now has been living in Susa for some time. Mordecai wasn't just some run-of-the-mill guy. He was a Jew of all Jews but he is a prisoner to some degree. And verse six doesn't make much sense in the context of the story unless you understand the rest of the story. You see, there was a time when the Jews lived together and they were captured by the Babylonians, particularly King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that name, if you've ever attended vacation Bible school, that name should ring a bell. King Nebuchadnezzar is a primary character in a book of the Bible in the Old Testament namely the book of Daniel. Now this book is an important book and it shows us uh, how a group of men or a group of boys, young boys, who had been taken captive, taken in exile, and then forced to assimilate into the culture how they responded to the king and his commands. What happened in Daniel? 
Daniel takes place 60 years prior to this story here in the book of Esther. The book of Daniel is about Jews being swept away and under captivity by a wicked and evil king, King Nebuchadnezzar. The story of Esther is the story of a young woman who is held captive in a wicked and pagan king, King Xerxes. But do you remember what happened in the book of Daniel? You said, I didn't know we were going to get two books for one today. But in the book of Daniel, there are these four boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember their story? Of course you remember their story. I hope the cobwebs are being cleared out just a little bit today. The book of Daniel is filled with how these boys refuse to assimilate. They're young. They are, they are bold. They are fervent for God and his glory. And here's what happens. They are, there is tremendous pressure put on them to assimilate into the culture, to do whatever they're told to do, eat the foods that they ate. Drink the drink that they drank. Do the workout regimen. Do the mind space. Do, do all these things. Assimilate. Don't make a, a ripple. Just fit in with everybody else. And what did they do? They refused. They said, I'm not going to do that. I have no interest in eating the foods that you eat and drinking the drink that you drink and, and doing the things that you call us to do. We, we are children of God. Our identity is in God we're not going to give in to whatever the culture tells us to do. In fact, Daniel 1 verse 9 says this. We'll put it on the screen for you. God had granted God. Now notice who the actor is. God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. God gave favor to Daniel when he refused to give in and assimilate to the culture. They were willing to do whatever the king had asked them to do except for compromise their identity in God. Now fast forward to chapter 3 of Daniel. In Daniel 3, you've got a very similar scenario. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come and they're tested again. And God does not intervene. God does not pull them out of the fray. But yet God joins them in the middle of the fight. They are thrown into a fiery furnace. And God meets them right there, protects them, keeps them whole, keeps them pure, and rescues them. But they will even say, before they go in, even if God does not rescue us, we will not give in to your request. You fast forward to chapter 6. Again, I told you, you get Daniel, the whole chapter. Here we go, the whole book. Daniel then is tempted or, or being forced to pray to the king. And Daniel just looks at him and says, I'm not doing that, man. That's my translation. I'm not giving in to that. I'm not going to assimilate. I'm not going to give in and compromise my identity in God. I, I'm going to stand firm in what happens. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. What happens in the lion's den? God intervenes in a very profound way, he shuts the mouths of the lions. You've got these moments with these young boys, and I want to draw a parallel for you quickly as we go from Daniel now back to Esther. You've got young boys in captivity, a vile, wicked, evil king who is forcing them and requesting them and commanding them to compromise what they believe. They stand firm, full of conviction, and say thanks but no thanks, and God intervenes in powerful ways. They say we will not give up our convictions. Even if God doesn't rescue us, we will always serve him. And when you really think about it, verse 6 doesn't make much sense in the rest of chapter 2, but it makes sense if we connect it to the story of Daniel. The Holy Spirit knew that it belonged here for us to understand that, hey, he had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar came 
three. But here in Esther, instead of a boy and a group of boys, it's a young girl who's now taken into captivity, exile, and forced to do some things that really are questionable. Look at verse 7. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah. That is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure. Notice it emphasizes that, and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when, when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. Esther and Mordecai are cousins. They're not, they're not husband and wife, as some might try to indicate. They're, they're cousins, and what happens here is that he's of an older age, and probably more like the age of an uncle to a niece, but instead, because they're cousins, he, he adopts her as his own. He loves her as a father would love a daughter, and when this edict goes out, Mordecai takes her to this harem. Look at verse 9. The young woman pleased Haggai, pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned, watch this, seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Now notice verse 10. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background Why? Because Mordecai had ordered her, had ordered her to not make it known. Every day Mordecai took a walk to the front of the harm's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and see what had happened to her. Esther is sitting there with a a dual identity crisis. She's got her Jewish identity, but now she has her Persian identity. She's taken then to the harem, and Mordecai orders her to not say a word about her identity. Now, you can speculate his motivations for doing so. We, we don't fully know somebody's motivations. We just know what they did. And all we know here is that Mordecai did not want anybody to know, A, his identity, B, hers. He is a purebred child of God, keeping it quiet. She's a purebred child of God, obeying her cousin, her father figure, because she's compliant. They're living in between two worlds, a world of, if you might even say, a parallel for us. We're residents here on earth, but we're citizens of heaven. Her identity is deeply rooted in her Christian, I mean, excuse me, her Jewish heritage, but Another part of her is caught up in this Persian moment. And notice what it continues to say if you drop down to verse 15. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. That's where we see this. When, he, when her turn came to go to the king, she didn't ask for anything except for a Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Watch this. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus, in the palace in the 10th month, the, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Watch this. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in the place of Vashti. Notice in verse 
9 and notice in verse 15 and notice in verse 17, unlike Daniel chapter 1 where God was the one who gave them favor, it's here where she has gained it or she has won it in the place of Haggai in the eyes, in the place of everyone who encountered her, but also in the place of the king. She goes into this chamber of the king and she goes, she had gone to Haggai and said, whatever it is I need to do, tell me and I will do it. And she does. And I don't know what she did. The text gives us no commentary on what she does in that, that bedroom. But all we know is that he had been with possibly thousand women. And yet here it's Esther who so elevates whatever happens in the room that she pleases him. He halts the search and puts a crown on her head. What was the king looking for? Well, the king was looking for somebody who would be completely compliant to whatever he wanted and asked. But not only that, she so pleased him in a physical way that he put the crown on her head. She was the opposite of Queen Vashti. She was compliant and she pleased the, the king. Daniel 1 says the boys stood uncompromising. Daniel 1 says that the boys stood up and said, we will not give in to you and we will not give in to this culture. Esther 2 shows us a woman who gives in in every way you could. The boys were shown chesed, which is loving kindness from God. It's a word that's throughout the, all the Old Testament. In fact, you see it most prominently in the book of Ruth. But you see this moment where she's, they're given in Daniel chapter 1, they're given hesed, which is an idea in the New Testament called the grace of God. They're shown grace, and they didn't do anything to earn it. God just gave it to them. But in, in Esther chapter 2, she's earning every bit of favor she can get. She's winning it. She's gaining it. She's earning it. She's asserting herself. She's not just running the race to run. She's running the race to beat everybody. She, she enters not just to get the rose, but to stomp on all the other roses and take that rose as her own. It's really difficult to read this and not think of the obvious meaning of the text. It is simply morally disappointing what Esther does here. I know that for many of us, we have prized Esther as this wonderful example. This is not the example that we would want our daughters to take. She does, without a doubt, some things that are morally questionable. She's doing some things that we would just, we would need hand sanitizer for our eyes if we saw them. When she enters the system, she didn't do it like the guys in Daniel 1 who just stood up and said, we're not going to give in. She does it way opposite and goes all in to win her prize. Whatever the criteria was, she did it, and she did it above. Frankly, that's it's not how we've understood Esther. Sometimes I think our problem with the Bible is that we haven't read it honestly. Sometimes the Bible and sometimes these characters don't meet our expectations because we've we've vegetailed the stories. We, we've made them not as offensive because we don't want the Bible to offend anybody. The Bible is just straightforward here. The Bible tells us Esther does some things that morally are reprehensible, not an example we would want to follow. But can I just tell you 
And I don't know what you're doing right now, but can I just tell you, the Bible is a story of brokenness in the world and brokenness in you and brokenness in me. But the Bible doesn't stop there because the Bible is the unveiling of God's grace towards the world, God's grace towards you, and God's grace towards me. I find it interesting that there's no commentary on what Esther does. There's no, oh man, this was not a good idea, or hey, I wouldn't recommend this. Just kind of asterisk it and put in the footnotes. There's no evidence, though, within this text that she was committed to God. No evidence that she was faithful to the covenants of God. No evidence that she even acknowledged them. And ironically, here's what happens in chapter 4, verse 16. You say, well, I want to turn to that now. Uh, Yeah, you're getting chapter... One, two, three, and four. Here we go. In chapter four, verse 16, when it comes to the point where she's got to go address the king, she doesn't even, she could have easily acknowledged God. She doesn't do it. She just goes to the people of the Jews and says, do whatever you guys do. Gather together. I'm about to go talk to the king. And then when she goes to talk to the king, and I don't mean to steal the show here, but when she goes to talk to the king, she doesn't even mention a covenant with God. She just mentions ethnic pride. I don't know what you're doing at home, but this is the moment where you put the coffee down and lean in just for a second. Esther teaches us that God, in his grace, does not discard us, but saves us, even from ourselves and deploys us for his purposes. Because in this moment, God does not discard Esther, even though she had done some wicked and reprehensible things. He doesn't discard her. Rather, he's going to save her. He's going to save her even from herself. And all of it is based upon his grace. He he has a covenant that he's made with the people of God. And he says, you're neglecting your identity, but I'm not going to neglect it in you. So many of us, friends, are like Mordecai. So many of us in our culture today are like Mordecai, where we have this identity in God, but we keep it private. It's what I like to call conviction light Christian. You, you, you have a heritage. You, you have a history. You, you even have what you believe is belief in God, but you keep it private. You don't want anybody to know. You don't want to make waves. You don't want to cause a disturbance. You want everybody to keep it secret. In fact, if anybody saw you on the street, they would have no idea of your relationship with God. If they encounter you at the restaurants, they would have no idea that you really believe God is the one who sits on the throne. They have no idea. Christian or conviction light Christian. You think keeping your your faith private keeps you out of the fray. And you'll do whatever the culture tells you to do just as long as you can keep things hush. Some of you are in enormous pressure in your workplace to have conviction light Christianity. Don't make any waves. Don't, don't, don't tell anybody about your faith. You, you keep that private. You keep that at home. Don't make, you, I don't care what you do on the weekends, but do not bring that up here at work. And if it's not at the workplace, it's online. It's within this political atmosphere where there is coming a day, and even the day is here where if you stand on God's word, you're seen as a bigot or you're seen as somebody who has hate speech. Many of us are like Mordecai, conviction-like Christians. Many of us are like Esther. We were raised in a conviction-light home, and now we are conviction-less. Conviction-less Christianity, those who 
man, they belong to God, but, but they're completely passive and they participate in all the things the world participates in and don't even give it a second thought. Esther gives in to every little thing. I mean, there's not a moment where she stands up and goes, this is not a good idea. Whatever the culture says, I'm in. You go in there on Friday night, I'll be there. Saturday night too, all in. And then they'll post about it. Convictionless Christianity does whatever, you, whatever the culture says, I, I wanna do that. Her life is like a river and she's the twig. And wherever that river flows, she's, she's gonna give in and do it. Whatever it leads her to do, oh, I'll do that. Hey, how, how do I please the king? I'll do it. How, how do I become more beautiful? I'll do it. Whatever it is, some of us are like Mordecai, Christian or uh, conviction light. Some of us are like Esther, conviction less. But oh, Rock Hill, may we be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel and be conviction filled Christians. We must stand on the issues that we must stand on and let the chips fall where they may. For far too long, we just kind of capitulate to whatever the culture tells us to do. But oh, I don't want a church full of conviction light or conviction less. We want a church that's conviction filled with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will stand in this culture and proclaim the good news of God when the culture tells us to keep it private. We will not give in to whatever the culture asks us to do or demands that we do to keep silent, we will stand up boldly. Many of you hear this and many of you are feeling that pressure. Man, I've been conviction light or maybe I've been conviction less and all of us have fallen into those categories. Some at some point in our life, but some of you are walking in it right now. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came because the world was full of conviction light and convictionless people. And he came not for all those that were conviction filled, but for those who were far from the kingdom of God. Jesus came for you. He redeems us. He's, he's the one who redeems us. We can't earn it like Esther tried to earn favor. It's just like Daniel. God just gives that grace to us. He's the one who kills our old nature. He's the one who gives us a new nature. He's the one who gives us a new identity. And he's the one that will help us stand when it gets hot. Our identity is in Christ to all those who believe in him. Our very name then becomes Christian, which means that we are to be like Christ. And may we not be a people who compromise on our identity in Jesus like it's so easy to do. If you fast forward, you get to a man named Martin Luther who stood before a council and they were trying to get him to be quiet about his things that needed to be reformed within Christendom. And he says to them with a simple phrase, here I stand. And the Reformation was lit. We're in a season in America that while we here in East Texas aren't having oppression in the sense that some others in the world or even in America are experiencing but our culture is trying to dictate to the church when they can and when they cannot meet. And you can say what you will about 
Dr. John MacArthur, he's 81 years old. He's, he's smarter at 81 than I will ever be in my lifetime times eight. Recently, he was instructed that if they continued to meet, he would be fined, which they're being fined, or even sent to prison. And his response was simple yet profound. He said, bring it on. Our prayer here at Rock Hill is that we would be a church that echoes that sentiment. Hey, bring it on. We're not trying to pick a fight with anybody, but we will not compromise on God's word. And we will continue to be a church that praises the name of Jesus when we're given the chance. But today, some of you are in this room and you don't find yourself in the camp of conviction filled. You're convictionless or conviction light. We struggle with how do we respond to that. So here's, here's what's going to happen this morning. And I know if you're at home, you can, you can just text pray and someone will pray with you. But here, right now, we're going to have men and women up in the front. And there's no judgment here. The idea that, oh, well, I wonder what's going on with them. Hey, you need to be worried about what's going on with you. We're going to have men and women in the front to just pray with you. We're going to be singing a song that maybe you knew. You may not know it. The point is to sing it over you to know that you serve a redeeming God who loves you and gave his life for you. And so this altar will be open for you just to kneel and pray as well. Maybe you got some business to do with God. You do it right here, right now. It's not the time to tarry or think I'm going to do it next week or I'll do it when I get home. You know, you know just as well as I know that doesn't always happen. Just a few minutes. I'm going to pray. We'll stand and you respond as God leads you. The altar will be open. Men and women will be here at the front. Men and women. So if you are a lady and we, we encourage you to pray with another woman, she'll be here at the front to receive you and to pray with you. No judgment, no condemnation, just lifting you up. Don't be shy. Bring it on. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask that even now as we respond in this moment that God, you would give us the wisdom Father, if there are those at home that are struggling with faith, that they would just reach out. Maybe take that really simple step to write these four words, P-R-A-Y, and someone will pray with them. God, in this room, if there's somebody who just needs to pray with somebody, they need to come to the altar and say, I, I need my Redeemer to redeem me because I've been conviction light. I've been conviction less. Oh, Lord, give me the strength to be conviction filled. We need that, Lord, today. We need it today more than ever. In Christ's name we pray, amen.